Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, everybody. What do you say? Welcome to the Bill Press Pod. This is a Friday, Friday, June 14, about 8.30 in the morning. And today we're going to look back at this week that was the week of Donald Trump with a lot going on from Donald Trump saying that he'd be happy to get dirt on his political opponents from any foreign agent or any spy that was around uh, to Sarah Huckabee Sanders saying, take this job and shove it. Well, not exactly. At any rate, helping us through the uh, news of the week. Three good friends, three outstanding uh, political commentators here in Washington. Jen Bendry joins us from HuffPost, covers the White House and Congress for HuffPost. Hi, Jen. Hi. Great to see you. Addie Baird with a new job at BuzzFeed, all things political. Hi, Addie. Hi. And Chris Liu is former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama and now is a senior fellow at the Miller Center for the University of Virginia. Hi, Chris. Great to be here. So uh, last night, uh, let's start with this. It was uh, an only in Washington, D.C. moment, I think. Um, I was uh, all set to go to a book party for the release of Jim Acosta's, the CN, CNN's chief White House correspondent, his new book called The Enemy of the People. And as I'm on my way out the door to Jim Acosta's book party, Sarah Huckabee Sanders announces that she is resigning. I'm not sure the cause and effect here. <laughs> uh, Jen... You've been at the White House under Sarah Huckabee Sanders. You're sad to see her go? Well, that would suggest that you would be seeing her there. She's never <laughs> there. Good point. She yeah. hasn't had a, a White House briefing in like 70-something days, I think, at this point. And I've often wondered what she does all day, because if she's not doing a briefing, which takes a lot of time to prepare for, um, I don't, you know, occasionally you'll see her on TV on the, in the in the driveway at the White House answering a couple questions, but she gets paid a decent salary by us and not really sure what she's been doing. Why do you think she left, Chris? You know, that's an interesting question because it, it isn't, uh, it's not clear that she's heading to the campaign, which would be the most obvious thing. Uh, she appears to be in good graces with the president. So, and it, <laughs> it certainly can't be burnout because she's not uh, doing yeah. a lot. So I, it's a little mystifying. Uh, and the president even said maybe she'd go back and run for governor, governor of, of Arkansas, Arkansas. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's just a collective shrugging. Clearly. Yeah, exactly. Clearly, yeah. she Good. is prepared to be the governor of Arkansas. <laughs> yeah, clearly, right. Uh, but Eddie, in terms of press secretaries that we've seen, how would you rank her? I mean, this is this is. Um, a, almost a hard question to answer because like everyone's saying she doesn't actually do the job of a press secretary like Sarah Huckabee Sanders has just sort of like been around um, and and to put her in any sort of ranking of press secretaries would require that she does the duties of a press secretary right. she hasn't well you have to admit too I believe as one who's in the briefing room with a few times that she's had briefings she's very 
nasty at the microphone. I mean, she has, she's hostile. It, it, you can cut the tension with a knife in that room, right? And, and with every question, you know, she's you know, basically declaring war. And that's why she's still in good graces with him. With him. And that's because she's always had an audience of one. It was never the, the American public or the, the, the reporters in the room that she was actually answering the questions for. Every single time that she's been on TV or talking in public, she is catering to what Trump wants to hear. And if you know what Trump wants to hear, it's something that is uh, belligerent, something that is extremely defensive of him, something that is pretty careless about the facts. Um, even when it's pretty easy to confirm that what might, she might be saying is not true, she would say things anyway that were just patently false. So if you think about her job truly being to please the president and that's it, then her, the way she's handled her press briefings makes sense. You mentioned not always telling the truth. Um, there are, I've seen already people putting up montages of Sarah Huckabee's <laughs> lies. Um, one of them was Michael Shear from the Washington Post, who was challenging her on the president's statement that when he fired James Comey, applause rang out at the FBI. Here, here's that little exchange. You said now today, and I think you said again yesterday, that you personally have talked to countless FBI officials, employees, since this happened. Correct. I mean, really? Like, I mean, I, I, I mean, really? I mean, so are we talking between like email, like, text messages? Like absolutely. 50, yeah. 67. I, I mean, like, look, we're not going to get into a numbers game. I, I mean, I have heard from a large number of individuals that work at the FBI that said that they're very happy with the president's decision. Yes. Um, countless employees. And, and when Sarah Huckabee Sanders was interviewed by the special counsel, reading, do you have that? Reading from the Mueller report. This is the Mueller report. Sanders told this office that her reference to hearing from countless members of the FBI was a slip of the tongue. <laughs> she also recalled that her statement in a separate press interview that rank-and-file FBI agents had lost confidence in Comey was a comment she made in the heat of the moment that was not founded on anything. That's from the Mueller report. Right, and this is, this is just the two instances when she was caught because she was being interviewed under oath uh, with the pe possible penalty of perjury. So, you know, this is time she's been caught, but, you know, none of this should surprise us. You know, this is, uh, gosh, we, we, we now long for the days of Sean Spicer where poor guy <laughs> on day one gets sent out there to, to lie about the crowd size. You know, I was in the Obama White House, and so I had a chance to work with, you know, Robert Gibbs and Jay Carney and Josh Sharnas. And if you talk to them, they'd say, look, you know, the, the, the relationship between the White House press corps and the White House press secretary is a challenging one, even in the best of circumstances. But they each understood their role, uh, and, and, and they went out there and they understood the value of the press conferences and why transparency mattered, and they would kind of do battle every single day. You know, we could have a larger conversation about the overall utility of that, but the idea just to get rid of that and then to devolve into kind of a series of, you know, falsehoods is, I mean, it, it, it's pretty disappointing for people who have been around politics for a long time. Right. Um, speaking of departures from the White House, we know Sarah Huckabee Sanders is leaving. Addie Baird, is Kellyanne Conway leaving? Of course not. <laughs> of course she's not. Just to put it in context, <laughs> right, the Office of Special Counsel a couple of days ago um, put out a, wrote a letter to the president saying that Kellyanne Conway had violated the 
Hatch Act so many times, repeated, repeat offender, that she should be terminated now. Right. And the White House immediately shot back and was like, you are, you are trying to restrict the free speech of Kellyanne Conway. Um, I mean, it was a sort of interesting like blip on the radar, um, you know, that, that there was a recommendation that Kellyanne Conway be removed from her job, but that's not going to happen. Um, the president loves her. Um, she's incredibly loyal to him and she's going to continue violating the Hatch Act and continue on in this job. <clears throat> right. Jen, I want to come to you, but first, Chris, maybe you should tell us what the Hatch Act is because you were covered by it. Yeah, I, painfully, I know too much about the Hatch Act. The Hatch Act uh, dates back to 1938 and it came into existence because of the Works Progress Administration and concerns that FDR was politicizing it. It essentially covers all federal civilian uh, employees, uh, career and political. Pol certain political appointees have a little bit more leeway, but essentially the theory is uh, whatever your uh, partisan political views are, you keep them out of the workplace while you're on the government dime. And the Office of Special Counsel is, is an office, again, to be distinct from the Robert Mueller's office, um, is kind of the sleepy little office that polices this, and no one generally uh, hears much from them. And that's why what yesterday's letter from them was so stunning. Uh, you know, it really talks about um, her flagrant and repeated abuse of the Hatch Act and how this undermines the rule of law. And, and what's interesting to note that the reason, and nobody can find any instance in which OSC has ever recommended somebody be removed. And the reason why is after the first violation, you probably already would have been fired. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that there are 2 million civilian employees that are covered by this who, have, who, who if they had done what Kellyanne had done, would have been out on the street. And so that's precisely why OSC took this 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 action because the example it sets for the federal workforce is so dangerous. But can, so Jen, we have heard Kellyanne Conway from the White House driveway for the most part um, attack Joe Biden, attack Elizabeth Warren, attack just about anybody who's who's criticized uh, Donald Trump. Uh, but here was her cavalier response to reporters when she was asked what she's going to do about this. I'm sorry, are you talking about something from a year and a half ago? Do you have, do you have a relevant question for today? Because I'm happy to answer today. If you're trying to silence me through the Hatch Act, it's not going to work. Sure Let me know when the jail sentence starts. <laughs> Let me know when the jail sentence starts. I mean, that's a pretty fitting response given her boss. Because on a much higher level, he's flaunting all kinds of uh, corruption and... and obstruction of justice and all kinds of major problems and he's essentially say daring people to come at him so why wouldn't she say you know oh we're, just let me know when i'm going to jail just blowing it off because they're not being you know she's not being there's not going to be any punishment right let me know when the jail sentence starts is like really at the heart of this entire administration <laughs> yeah uh it sounds like she's probably heard Donald Trump say that privately in the Oval Office, perhaps. Um, speaking of Donald Trump in the Oval Office, uh, an interview this week that he gave to uh, George Stephanopoulos of uh, ABC News. Uh, next week in Orlando, he launches officially the 2020 campaign, which actually started for him the day after he was inaugurated as president of the United States, but officially in, Or in Orlando next week. So George Stephanopoulos <coughs> asks him famously, now, this time around, after all this trouble about maybe accepting 
dirt on Hillary Clinton or looking for it from Russian operatives, would you accept any information from any foreign agent this time around Donald Trump? I should add, this is the Donald Trump clip as played on the Sean Hannity show. So he puts his puts it in his context. This is actually the most amazing setup you'll ever see. Brand new interview clip between the president and ABC's Georgie Stephanopoulos, the resident Clinton sycophant. Take a look. Your campaign this time around, if foreigners, if Russia, if China, if someone else offers you information on an opponent, should they accept it or should they call the FBI? I think maybe you do both. I think you might want to listen. I don't, there's nothing wrong with listening. If somebody called from a country, Norway, we have information on your opponent. Oh, I think I'd want to hear it. You want that kind of interference in our elections? It's not an interference. They have information. I think I'd take it. If I thought there was something wrong, I'd go maybe to the FBI. Now, this is what's fascinating. Let's be very clear. You might want to listen. Listening is much different then let's see, lying, spying, and paying for Russian lies and spreading it through the media by deep state operatives and then using it as the base of a FISA warrant. So Chris Slew, the president, talked to the president of Poland this week. What's the big deal? He's always talking to foreigners. Poor Norway. Norway gets dragged into this needlessly. <laughs> it's like friendly fire. They had no comment. They have no comment. No, they did. They, that was their official response. <laughs> their official response. With no comment. You know, look, I I ran Obama's uh, transition and um, in two thousand eight. Uh, I never had any foreign officials approach me. Had they? done so, I would have immediately gone to the FBI. And I knew to do that, not because I was briefed, but because that's the right thing to do. Uh, Joe Lockhart, uh, Clinton's press secretary, went on uh, Twitter last month, and he just basically put out there, any camp anyone who's worked on a presidential campaign in a senior role, tell me what you would have done uh, if you were approached by Russia or some adversary. And you've got you know Republican and Democratic operatives going back decades, all saying, this is what we do. And so this is not opposition research. This is subversion of our democracy. And, uh, you know, it's, it's again, in a, in a period of time where every day seems to get worse and worse, this is pretty bad. And, Addy, the most Republicans in Congress, do you think, I mean, we always hate to play this game and should not play this game. What if Hillary Clinton, what if Barack Obama had done something like this? Republicans in Congress basically have said, no big deal. So Kevin McCarthy had his weekly briefing yesterday and it was just like the the feeling in the room the like cloud the like fog of war from reporters trying to get a straight answer out of him was it was just impossible and he basically kept saying oh president trump would never do that and another reporter would pick it up and be like he said he would do that. And he would be like, no, no, if you listen to what he said, what he actually said, and someone would be like, no, no, like what he actually said. <laughs> and so it just is sort of this like complete cognitive dissonance. And finally someone was like, if you were approached, what would you do? And he was like, oh, I'd go to the FBI. And it's, it's just, I mean, there's, there's no real logic to this. There's no, you know, there's no seriousness to this response. There's no... Um, there's nothing, there's no meat. But here. there is logic because all that they care about is getting reelected right. and getting Trump reelected. Right. That's okay. it. There's, there and is, what, there is apparently no line in, in that, yeah. except Lindsey Graham, of all people, uh, who is a strong Trump ally, yesterday said that um, 
Yeah, he, the, the president probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Lindsay, that's, that's a pretty strong pushback at this point. It's got to be pretty bad if Lindsey Graham is critical of the president. But Jen, doesn't it show that Trump didn't learn anything from 2016? Right? Or he did learn something. He learned that he can, he can roll the way that he wants, and he's not going to get in trouble for it. So he might as well keep doing it. Well, and the interesting thing is uh, the way that, that House Democrats have responded as well, which is that like, <coughs> Nancy Pelosi is just sticking to her guns here, where she's like, the president doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. The president does, like, you know, clearly this is, like, unconscionable. And stop. Like, it feels like she's leading up to it. Like, that's why we must impeach. But they, she will not go that far. Um, before we take a break, does this quicken the move toward impeachment inquiry in the House? You know, I think this adds this adds more fuel to the fire, and I would actually put the Kellyanne Conway thing on that as well. I mean, you know, blatant disregard for the law of the Hatch Act and allowing somebody to continue to serve. Look, each one of these in and of themselves is not enough to impeach, but when you add them all together, um, it's starting to build a pretty compelling case. It's the Bill Press Pod with Jen Bendry and Chris Liu and Addie Baird here, and me, Bill Press. The Bill Press Pod brought to you today by the American Federation of Teachers, the great men and women of the uh, AFT under President Randy Weingarten. Teachers of America, as a former teacher myself, uh, I do believe that teachers uh, do the most important work and the best work in this country every single day. We depend on them. We uh, depend on turn our kids over to them, uh, and they deliver. Not only in the classroom, they've been delivering on the political front as well, uh, holding um, massive strikes in uh, Oklahoma and West Virginia and Kentucky, even in the red states, uh, to get better support for America's public schools. We salute the members of the AFT uh, and thank them for their support of the podcast. Check out their website at AFT.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And welcome back to this uh, week's roundtable with Jen Bendry from HuffPost, Addie Baird from BuzzFeed, and Chris Liu from the Miller Center of the University of Virginia, former Deputy Secretary of the, uh, Secre of the, the Labor Department Labor under Department. Uh, President uh, Barack Obama. Iowa was the place this week for politics with both Joe Biden and Donald Trump heading off not a coincidence, I think, on the same day to Iowa. Before he left, uh, Donald Trump meeting with reporters in the gaggle on the South Lawn, telling why he looked forward to running against Joe Biden. No, I'd rather run against, I think, Biden than anybody. Uh, I think he's the weakest mentally. And I like running against people that are weak mentally. I think Joe is the weakest up here. The other ones have much more energy. I don't agree with their policies. But I think Joe is uh, a man who was, I call him 1% Joe, because until Obama came along, he didn't do very well. He calls him 1% Joe. He calls him Sleepy Joe. Uh, 
So what do you think, Jen? He seems obsessed <laughs> with Joe Biden. He's obsessed with, with anyone who appears to be doing better than him. And I think some of this was coming from some polls that, you know, it is early and you always have to take polls with a grain of salt, especially after 2016. However, um, there are a couple of polls out that are getting a lot of attention that show Joe Biden ahead of Trump in Texas and also in Michigan. And those are some pretty startling statistics for states where Trump carried and should, you know, at least in theory, be ahead of anybody. So combine that with with some other reports of internal polling that Trump's team has seen where Trump is behind Biden. Of course, he's going to come out now into the the White House uh, driveway and or talk to reporters and say all kinds of bad things about Joe Biden. Does this do Biden any good or Trump any good? Or either one? I, I think it does both of them uh, good. You know, Trump does best when he has an opponent and he's, he's zeroed in on uh, Joe Biden. You know, perhaps instead of calling him 1% Joe, you should call him 13% Joe because according to Quinnipiac, that's actually what Biden's beating him by nationally by 13 <laughs> points. But, you know, it's interesting because Biden can go to Iowa and in a field of 24 people, he can get wall-to-wall cable coverage in a way that the other 23 can't when he's speaking about Trump. And so it really helps both of them at this point. But we are so early in the race, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how the Democratic debates come out in the next 10 days or so. But, Addy, it looks like almost that he's already decided this is a Trump-Biden contest, and right? That's what he wants, and that's the way he's going to play it. Certainly, um, it seems like that's what Trump has decided for this moment. Um, I, I, you Good know, point. It, 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 I feel very confident. I feel more confident about this than just about anything else um, that he's going to change his mind. Probably by the next time you've got a group of reporters sitting around this table next week. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is this is sort of the. This is the fight that Donald Trump wants to pick. I think it also um, makes sense to him. Joe Biden is his peer in a lot of ways, and a lot of other members of the Democratic field, um, younger people of color, um, people who are kind of developing their own base, people who could capture uh, capture some members of Trump's base is, is, is some of the argument going on there. And, um, you know, that's got to be overwhelming for right. him. So um, the two of them are there. Uh, Trump has uh, sent off his broadside there um, before he even leaves. And then Joe Biden appears in Iowa, uh, and he has to respond, and he does. You know, uh, the, uh, and I think that, look, I, I believe that the president is literally an existential threat to America for three reasons. One, uh, he is a genuine threat to uh, our, uh, our core values. And if you wondered about that, remember what happened in Charlottesville. I never thought I'd see that happen in my lifetime again. You had people come climbing out of the fields and un- from under rocks, carrying torches, so, contorted faces, Chris, let me just jump chanting in there. the same. He, he doesn't sound to me like the dynamic front-runner of the Democratic Party taking on Donald Trump. I mean, you, just the, I don't want to be too critical, but just the phrase existential threat. I mean, Trump says... Biden's a loser. Everybody gets that. You know, Trump said about Biden. Biden says he's an existential threat. You walk down the street here and ask most people what existential threat means. They have no idea. Yeah, there is. Um, I, it, it's, I think it's both the strategy that the Biden campaign is employing, but I think it's also who Joe Biden is. I think what, what their view is, 
uh, a return to normalcy, um, even if it's sort of a boring normalcy, is really what most Americans want. Most Americans want their Saturday and Sunday mornings back. They don't want to have to think about tweets. They, they want their president to go overseas and not embarrass them. And so talking at a higher level in a way that potentially has a broadening appeal is what they want. The challenge is whether that's enough to capture where the tone of the Democratic base is right now. And so when Joe Biden talks about his ability to work with Republicans, and he talked about in Iowa this week that, you know, he believes post-Trump the Republican Party will sort of kind of come back again towards working on compromises. Uh, that actually may be factually true, but tonally it's a little off from where the party is right now. There was also Beto uh, starting to take the first swings at Biden. Um, I think it was on Morning Joe, and he basically was saying, like, normal's not enough. We can't just go back. We have to have a vision for, um, you know, a, a new generation. And um, I, I think he'll basically be a suicide bomber in that way. Like, he'll take himself out uh, in, in an effort to take down Biden. And I think, I think it might work. Mm. So, Jen, I just felt, looking at the field, I mean, looking at Joe Biden out there, uh, I hate to say it, but he looked weak. He looked weak to me in his response, and he looked a little old. <laughs> he is old. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. He's an old white guy, just like Trump. So there's that. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's an older white man who's going at this for the third time. But, but I've seen Joe Biden when he's fiery and he's up at the podium and I and you know really de delivers. Like, yeah, we've all we've, seen that. We've, we've all seen that. And didn't see that. This weekend, no, either. and I don't know if it's because he's like conserving his energy, you know, for this. It's a, there's a long campaign ahead, or maybe as Chris says, deliberately playing it that way. Well, I also think it's this. I mean, J Joe Biden's biggest uh, enemy, biggest challenge in all this is himself. Um, he he is an incredibly dynamic speaker, but he is also prone to gaffes. There's an aspect of him that's not disciplined. So clearly, what they are trying to do is to script these remarks and keep him on message. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, and yet when you do that, you probably lose a little bit of the fire that we all love in Joe Biden. Right. Um, on the congressional front, the most um, dramatic moment, I think, this week was in the hearing of a subcommittee on the Victims Compensation Fund. Uh, and these workers, some of them, um, from 9-11, the, from, from that day, coming down here, who've been... Um, depending on this federal funding, which was about to run out, uh, basically pleading on Congress to continue it, but nobody made the case stronger than John Stewart, who's been on this issue since since the day after 9/11, uh, and was there again pleading with Congress and, and dramatically telling them to do their job. Behind me, room of 9/11 first responders, and in front of me, a nearly empty Congress. Sick and dying, they brought themselves down here to speak to no one. It's shameful. It's an embarrassment to the country, and it is a stain on this institution. And you should be ashamed of yourselves for those that aren't here, but you won't be, because accountability doesn't appear to be something that occurs in this chamber. The official FDNY response time to 9-11 was five seconds. Five seconds. That's how long it took for FDNY, for NYPD, for Port Authority, for EMS, to respond to an urgent need from the public. Five seconds. There is not an empty chair on that stage that didn't tweet out, never forget the heroes of 9-11. This hearing should be flipped. These men and women should be up on that stage and Congress should be down here answering their questions as to why this is so damn hard. 
and take so damn long? They responded in five seconds. They did their jobs with courage, grace, tenacity, humility. 18 years later, do yours. Five seconds versus 18 years. Jen, what took so, I mean, seriously, what took so long? This happens regularly. This is not the first time they, that John Stewart or anybody's been in there pleading with them to, you know, fund this fund. Basically, lawmakers don't make this a huge priority. They don't. They have to be shamed into paying attention to it. I think as more time goes by, the, the idea of paying attention to the Victims Fund for 9-11 becomes more of a distant memory. And you have to literally go up to them in the hallways with cameras and be a famous person catching them on camera <coughs> and asking them why they're not funding, you know, helping these people who saved many lives in, in, on 9-11. It's a shame thing. And it's it's... It's just routine at this point. So the fact that John Stewart was in there yesterday making this very compelling case is commendable and also not new. And it's just yet again a reflection on on members of Congress. They just don't they don't make this a priority. They they just don't. And leadership has to be pushed, especially Republicans have to be pushed into standing up and saying we're going to make this a priority. Well, we know there's a partisan divide now, maybe uglier than ever, Eddie, but you would think on this, there's certain issues, and this would be one of them, would it be a no-brainer? They would just say, of course we're going to do this. Boom. Automatic, right? You would think that, and that is, that's not been, that's not been the case for years. Like, you know, like Jen was saying, I, I, I said to my roommate, like, you know, there was a clip of Jon Stewart on TV, and I went, well, that time of year again when Jon Stewart has to go in front of Congress and beg them to do their jobs uh, because these people are dying of cancer uh, that they got because they were saving lives on 9-11. So Chris, maybe is the broader point here that testimony, particularly testimony on television, really counts. It's really powerful. <laughs> Uh, and maybe that gets back to why they want Robert Mueller to appear, even if he does nothing more than read from this report that I've got in front of No, me. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, we've seen way too many celebrities testify on Capitol Hill where it's been a lot of fluff. And, and I, I recommend to all of your listeners to watch uh, John Stewart's testimony because it is compelling. Uh, it should not have taken this. And what is remarkable that the possible argument against this is that it costs too much money. And if you think about the amount of money we spent on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan post 9-11, this is simply a fraction of that. But your broader point is right. I mean, simply having Hope Hicks or Don McGahn or Robert Mueller saying exactly what they have said, already said in writing on national TV would have a powerful educating uh, uh, function. Right. And, you, and we've already seen this when, <clears throat> when Robert Mueller held his press conference without questions. Um, he essentially said out loud what was already we've already read in the report. But most people haven't read the report. A lot of people around the country who did catch it didn't know that's what the report found because they keep seeing Trump's tweets saying he's been exonerated and no collusion, no obstruction. So that once you just say it over and over and over again, there's this thinking like it's true. But I, I definitely have seen stories and polling since Mueller's press conference where people just voters are like, I had no idea that's what that report found. Uh, and that just scratched the surface, that news conference. Yeah, that wasn't Nine even and a, a half minutes long. And that wasn't a congressional hearing. That wasn't, didn't have the force of Congress behind it. That was just him standing in front of a microphone, reading, basically telling you what he already said in his report. 
Um, I think it was uh, Congresswoman Diana DeJet, DeJet, thank you, uh, from Colorado, who said, even if Robert Mueller comes and just reads from this report, that would be a plus. Doesn't If he doesn't want to go beyond it, fine, just read the relevant sections of, of the report. I want to go back to the Democratic um, uh, Joe Biden, uh, Donald Trump, whoever the nominee ends up being, because we now are about a week from the very first Democratic debate. Uh, and the DNC has announced those people who are going to be welcome on stage. There are 20 of them. It's easier to talk about the three who did not make it. Uh, Seth Moulton, uh, Steve Bullock from Montana, uh, and Wayne Messam from Florida, or and also Mike Gravel, if you count Mike Gravel. So, uh, 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 Put the teens on stage. <laughs> Um, what do you look forward to here, Chris? 20? We don't know who's going to be on which night yet, but there are going to be 20 candidates on stage. Yeah, you know, it's going to be fascinating. And a lot of this, and I've talked to a couple of the campaigns, it's the gamesmanship of who you're on stage with. So what they're going to do is divide the 20 into two tiers, the higher polling ones and the bottom polling ones. And they'll mix and match from, you know, group A and group B together. So if you are a, let's say, a Pete Buttigieg or a Beto O'Rourke, you would love to be on stage against Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden because that really, um, that, that really highlights um, the, 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 the disparity in age there. And certainly if you're uh, Beto or Pete, you don't want to be on stage with each other. So you're gaming a little bit of this out. I suspect that you're going to see some of these second tier people have a couple zingers in their back pocket of because they're really only going to get a couple of minutes. Uh, and they're going to have to make those couple minutes count for that viral moment that will kind of move them into the top tier. Yeah. You might have talked about this, um, you know, last week or some other time because it's been brewing for a few days, feels a little longer. But Steve Bullock not being on this stage has, has really upset a lot of people. He is the only Democratic governor uh, in a state that Trump won who's running. And he says he got into the race late because he was expanding Medicaid in Montana, which is just really remarkable. Um, and, you know, you have Andrew Yang, you have Marianne Williamson, you have Bill de Blasio on this stage. And you don't have this governor who really has um, a unique claim to, you know, having having something to add to this debate. And, and it's just really remarkable that he's not going to be there. Uh, but Jen, they laid out some conditions. They laid out if everybody knew exactly what they were, and um, he didn't miss by much, but he didn't make the cut. That's right. And I mean, they had to draw a line somewhere, and there was certainly a push to get Steve Bullock in this, to go run for the Senate, which is why a lot of people are also looking at him and saying, "You're so great. Why aren't you doing something that's a little more achievable?" And um, and, you know, the Senate is, I feel, starting to get a little more attention than it typically would because it's just there's nothing happening in there except judges getting confirmed all the time. And there's just no, without changing the makeup of the Senate, if, if not anything, lifetime federal judges are just going to keep getting confirmed that are right-wing ideologues, that are not even qualified to be federal judges. They're just... Every day, they're just confirming them, confirming them. These are lifetime judges. So I think the judge issue is actually starting to make people pay more attention to the Senate, which is where someone like Bullock comes in. Like, he could help to, like, tilt it back toward Democrats, so that's not going to happen anymore. Right. And, of course, now the uh, conditions for the third and fourth debate have been uh, upped a little bit, doubled in effect, uh, and some people are complaining about that already, right? Um, 
I ask each of you to uh, think about maybe a something in the news this week that caught your attention, particularly um, a favorite moment uh, of the week. It could be a serious issue or not so serious issue. Addie? So the thing I thought of, the thing that came to mind very first when you asked us this question, there was a really fascinating profile of Tulsi Gabbard in New York Magazine this week. Um, I think the headline was was just like Tulsi Gabbard had a very strange childhood or, or something something along those lines. And it was this really fascinating profile of the kind of... Um, you know, uh, this Hare Krishna-infused kind of religion, community, blob thing that she grew up in. and Hawaii, um, Hawaii right? Uh, yes, it was in Hawaii. And it's just, like, fascinating to kind of, it really, the piece really puts the pieces together about, like, who Tulsi Gabbard is and what her deal is and why she is the way she is. Um, and I thought it was, it's beautifully written. It's really interesting. Um, and, you know, I, I've, I've long found Tulsi Gabbard to just be kind of baffling. And it kind of starts to answer some of those questions. Um, thought it was really, really good. Maybe she'll talk about it in the debate. Chris? You know, um, we try to fact check the things that the president says, and it gets a little exhausting. And people forget last Saturday after the quote unquote deal he got with Mexico, um, <laughs> he tweeted out that Mexico is going to buy large quantities of, of, of agricultural products from the United States. And there was a hearing this week uh, in the House, House Agriculture Committee where the, the, the top agriculture negotiator at the U.S. Trade Representative's office and one of the top um, officials at the Agriculture Department were asked, do you have any idea what the president is talking about? Um, and neither one of them could answer the question. Um, that's not really a story. It's more just sort of, um, if it's a secret agreement, it's apparently secret from the people that negotiated the, the, the agreement and would be implementing the agreement. Are you just talking about avocados? Who knows, right? Jen, what caught your eye? I've been watching the U.S. Women's national oh, soccer team. All I week. know where you're going. <laughs> I'm gonna yes. bring this up. Yes, good. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, one thing to, that I've been watching closely is how the issue of their fair pay is is still oh. there. They are still fighting yes. to get paid equally uh, to the men's team. They're exponentially yes. better than the men's team. They've won multiple World Cups. They've won multiple gold medals in the Olympic Olympics. They won all kinds of international things. They're just they are the number one team in the world. The women's in the women's division. But they're getting paid like a fraction of what the men make. So there's that. But also interesting to me this week is um, the reactions that have come to mm -hmm. the U.S. women's team having their first game against Thailand and winning 13 to nothing, which was incredible. I was watching it and just freaking out it's because they, record, right? they, oh, absolutely. Yeah. they scored like five goals in four minutes and all kinds of records broken in that game. But the responses to that by some were saying that it wasn't very sportsmanlike. It was, you know, you yes. should have capped it at seven. You should have just dribbled the ball around and, like, mm -hmm. you know, that's not... Or let like, them score. Let them score or just, like, <laughs> you know, ease up because it looks bad. Yeah. And so I thought that was insane. This is the World Cup international stage. This is the best of the best at the top of their game. You, you play the best game of your life. So a piece that caught my eye was an opinion piece in the Washington Post by Alexandra Petri called 13 Goals for Women Who Want to Celebrate World Cup Wins. And it's ways that you should respond to women winning in soccer, but it's all tongue in cheek. So one of my favorite of her 13 goals for women to appropriately, appropriately respond to this is number six, instead of scoring another goal against the other team, 
try just running around the field, pointedly not scoring. This will make the other team feel better than if you were to play against them to the best of your ability. And so she's got 13 points in the piece about, like, don't celebrate too much because it looks rude, but celebrate a little bit because then you look sad. So, so she just basically applies things that have, that have happened to female candidates in politics mm. and the way they're supposed to act to the way the women's national soccer team is supposed to react when they win. It's yeah. hilarious and on point. Alexandra Petri, one of the best writers in the Washington Yeah, there's Post. a reason why she won that. Absolutely. I'll tell you, my favorite story of the week was a story that broke just a couple of days ago uh, that scientists have discovered that 2,500 years ago in China, they were introducing pot cannabis in their funeral services. Why? Because they know that pot makes people so happy in this life, they wanted them to be happy in the next life as well. <laughs> and there was one guy they found that was buried with 13 pot plants, cannabis plants, crossed across, uh, placed across his chest like a bouquet of roses. You know? So I think it's about time that we learned something from the Chinese. So far, only nine states in the District of Columbia have uh, legalized recreational marijuana. Maybe we could... We could learn from them. So you want to be buried with weed. I was exactly. just about to say, are, are you making some recommendations? For, <laughs> and like by, the way, by the way, they also found that they were going after the strongest possible pot, too, uh, that they used in their services. We can learn something from that. There you go. Right. Uh, what a week. As we say, there's never a dull week in uh, the world of Donald Trump. And it certainly hasn't been uh, dull this week. So thank you, Jen Bendery and Chris Liu and Addie Baird for, for helping us through it. Uh, let me finish off with a little parting shot here. And uh, I uh, warn you again that these are my comments only and not necessarily the comments of our panelists. But I want to say that there was a time, and it wasn't so long ago, when my favorite holiday was the 4th of July. That uh, was the one day that we all put aside all of our differences and we just celebrated this great land that we love. Of course, that was before Donald Trump ruined the 4th of July. Uh, yes, as you've probably heard, uh, Trump himself has taken over the planning for the 4th of July, this year's 4th of July, and he's changed it from a celebration of America to a celebration of himself. The fireworks have been moved from the Washington Mall to the West Potomac Park, so that Donald Trump can give a speech, which we all know will be an I Made America Great Again speech, from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Listen carefully. That rumbling you hear is the sound of our founding fathers rolling in their graves. I mean, there's so much wrong with this, it's hard to know where to start. Let's start here. I believe it's a sacrilege to allow this racist president to stand on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial that was made sacred by Marian Anderson and Martin Luther King Jr., it's also an outrage to let Donald Trump turn our 4th of July celebration into a political rally. Rally. The 4th of July is not about any one man or any one president, and it's certainly not about Donald Trump. It's about the very best of America, not about the very worst. So I don't know about you, but I'm not going to celebrate this year's Independence Day. I'm going to wait for the real Independence Day, November 3rd, 2020, when we finally win independence from Donald Trump. That's our roundup for today, the Bill Press Pod. Thanks so much for being with us. And please don't forget to check it out. Subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. Uh, and if you're really a good friend, give us a five-star review. It really helps us get the word out. 
Thanks again for joining us. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week on the Bill Press Pod.